Amen. So we're going to talk about justification today to the, the elect, the remnant who are, uh, who are here uh, this morning, the first day that we've had uh, good weather in like three weeks. So justification, what is, uh, what is justification? That's what we'll talk about today. And, uh, and so as we kind of uh, previewed it last week, if you're here last week, Zach talked about uh, kind of the history of interpretation of justification and talked about justification as kind of how you get the good stuff. All right, Jesus has done the good stuff. He's gotten the good stuff for you. Justification is how you get the, uh, it's how you go from uh, being a sinner to being declared a saint. So last semester, what we did is we talked about uh, the doctrine of humanity, the doctrine of sin, and then we began to talk about soteriology, which is what? The doctrine of salvation. And in, uh, in particular, last semester, what we did is we focused on what Christ has accomplished and one of the things that we talked about there is uh, what Christ has accomplished is kind of like this multifaceted diamond. And uh, depending upon which way that you hold it up to the light, you see different, uh, different glimpses of what Christ has accomplished. It's just one holistic thing, and yet you see these various perspectives uh, on, uh, within the, uh, the sort of faces of the uh, diamond. So we talked last a semester about uh, ransom or redemption, which is this image of uh, slaves being purchased back from slavery. And, uh, and then we talked about propitiation, which is this image of a uh, wrath-satisfying uh, sacrifice. And uh, we talked about uh, the uh, theory of the atonement, that is Christus Victor, which is the image of a king that comes and conquers his enemies. And we talked about how none of these are intended to be read in isolation in and of themselves, that they are instead, again, these sort of different faces of this one diamond. They are one holistic work. They are complementary, not contradictory. So we don't ask the question, is Christ a ransom or is Christ propitiation? We say, yes, he's both. And, uh, and so as we talked about that last semester, so this semester, as we're talking about not what Christ has accomplished, but how what Christ has accomplished has been applied to us, the application of redemption, we'll see that even the application of redemption is like a multifaceted diamond as well. So that we hold it up to the light and we see different perspectives. And so we've talked about a few of those and we'll continue to talk about them over, uh, over the next few weeks. Uh, and so we will talk about adoption in a couple of weeks, which is obviously this familial language where we go from uh, being uh, slaves to being sons uh, and daughters of a king. And, uh, and so this week what we want to talk about is justification, which is sort of legal imagery. It's this forensic, this legal aspect, this judicial uh, declaration that God makes towards us. And again, these aren't uh, contradictory. It's not either that we're adopted or justified. These things go together. And uh, so that's what we want to talk about today. You can't be justified without being adopted and vice versa. The same goes for union with Christ that we'll talk about at some point with regeneration, which we've already talked about. Each of these things are distinct works under the heading of the application of redemption, but they're indivisible. They're distinct, but they are indivisible. And uh, so I want to begin with a, uh, a definition. Wayne Grudem defines justification as this, an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, first, thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, and second, declares us to be righteous in his sight. 
Now, Zach and I certainly don't think that we are as esteemed as, uh, as Dr. Grudem, but we came up with our own definition whenever we were uh, working through Romans 4 and, uh, and related sections. And so this is what we said. You might remember this from some of our sermons back a few months ago. We said, justification is the act of God whereby he credits those who are unrighteous as having the status of righteous which means the absence of evil and the presence of moral perfection. So uh, those are kind of trying to get to the heart, what is justification? And so last week, Zach mentioned the fact that uh, justification, justify, just, righteous, righteousness, all of these share the same root word in Greek. Dikaio is the, uh, the root word. Dikaios, dikaiosune, all of these Greek words are coming from this same uh, root. That said, we only have, uh, we don't have in English, we don't have a way to take the concept, the noun righteous or righteousness, and therefore translate that into a verb. There's no such word as righteify or righteousize, which sounds like a spiritual value meal or something like that. You want to righteousize your forgiveness or something. We don't have a way to do that. And so we also have the word just, justify. But there's just the, the exact same uh, concept. And so since we can't make righteous into a verb, we have the word justify. So anytime you see justify, think righteousness. Anytime you see righteousness, think justification. These things are uh, related concepts. And so if the solution that we're going to talk about today is justification, then let's work backwards and talk for a second. What's the problem? If justification is the solution, what is the problem that necessitates this solution? And the answer is unrighteousness. Again, justification, righteousness, same root word. If justification is the solution, unrighteousness must must be uh, the problem. So unrighteousness is the problem. Condemnation is the problem. You'll never really understand justification unless you really reckon with the reality of condemnation, with the reality of man's innate, inherent unrighteousness. That's why, before we got to soteriology, doctrine of salvation, we spent a lot of time in homartiology, which is what? The doctrine of sin, all right? You will never understand soteriology unless you understand homartiology, all right? So imagine, uh, imagine this sort of illustration. Imagine that you have a cold, all right? And you have this cold, you have this cold for a few days, and it, uh, it lingers into a week or whatever, and then you feel better. And you wake up and you text everybody that you possibly know, and you say, hey, I feel much better from my cold. Is everyone going to be super excited? Like, is everyone going to call you and throw a party and all that? No, why not? Because it's just a cold. Now imagine, on the other hand, that you have cancer. You have this uh, stage four terminal uh, cancer, and all of a sudden, you go to the doctor, and there's no sign of it whatsoever. Then you text everybody in your text chain. There's a totally different response there. Why? Because cancer is different from a cold. Likewise, if we're going to understand why justification is such good news, we have to understand why unrighteousness is such bad news. So go back, if you're not familiar with that, if you weren't here, as we talked about things like total depravity, if you weren't here, as we talked about the doctrine of sin, go back and listen to that, because this won't make as much sense. It won't seem as much like good news unless you understand that bad news. So what justification is doing is it's really answering this question that our culture isn't asking. Our culture should be asking this question, but our culture isn't asking this question. What our culture wants to ask, and we've seen this a lot as we've been preaching through Romans 9, our culture wants to ask the question, 
How in the world can a loving God condemn sinners? How can a loving God condemn people for, for sin? But that's the wrong question. The better question is, how can a God of holiness, how can a God of truth, a God of justice pronounce a verdict of just upon one who is obviously and wholly unjust? That's the better question. That's the more biblical question. How can God receive a criminal into his courts? How can he exercise mercy without insulting justice? That's the problem that uh, Paul was dealing with in Romans chapter 3, if you remember when we preached through that. Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Listen to this. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So justification shows God's righteousness. Why might he seem unrighteousness according, or why, why might he seem unrighteous according to Romans 3? Because he had passed over former sins. So the cross is going to explain how God can both be just, he can remain just, and yet also be a justifier, one who justifies unjust people like you and me. In other words, it seems unjust of God to justify unjust people. This is what the entire book of Romans is about. So this, uh, this lesson today is really going to complement what we've been talking about over the, uh, the past uh, few months as we've been working through uh, the book of, uh, of Romans. So this is not my outline, but you have an outline there in your notes from a, uh, a leading commentary on the book of Romans. Uh, and it basically breaks up the book of Romans entirely into justification language. You have the introduction, then you have the theme, which is the righteousness that comes from God. Then you have the unrighteousness of all mankind, chapters 1 through 3. Then 3 through 5, righteousness imputed, that's justification. Then you have righteousness imparted and sanctification, chapters 6 through 8. 9 through 11 is God's righteousness vindicated, that's where we are in the sermon series right now. Then you have 12 through 15, righteousness practice, and then you have conclusion and the uh, sort of commendations and concluding uh, greetings. And so this is the book of, uh, of Romans. So what I want to do today is basically just do two things. One, I want to distinguish justification from a couple of things. We'll distinguish justification from forgiveness and justification from sanctification. That's the first thing I want to do. And then I want to talk about how we are justified whether that is by imputation or impartation. If you don't know what those words means right now, that's fine. We'll get to it. And then whether it's by faith or by works. So that's all we're going to do. We're going to answer four questions, basically. We're going to distinguish justification between, uh, from forgiveness and sanctification, and then we're going to talk about how we're justified uh, by distinguishing uh, imputation from impartation and faith from works. So that's it. So let's talk about justification distinguished. So part one, justification versus forgiveness. Who here has heard that justified means that God looks at you just as if I'd never sinned? Who's heard that before? That's really clever, right? It's also wrong. That's not what justification is at all. That's just forgiveness. All right, justification and forgiveness are uh, different 
uh, works. And, uh, and so all that does, if God looks at you just as if you'd never sinned, all that does is just get you back to neutral. Justification is about more than that. Justification is basically this. It's forgiveness plus imputation. Forgiveness plus imputation. We'll talk about why the word imputation is significant uh, as we talk about the difference between imputation and impartation. Uh, but for now, just uh, recognizing justification is forgiveness plus imputation. And then there's the declaration that God gives. On the basis of forgiveness plus imputation, God declares something. So this is why forgiveness alone is not the biblical model because there are two exchanges that need to take place here. Forgiveness just deals with debt. You owe God something. You have, uh, you have racked up this infinite debt uh, by virtue of your sin. And so that debt needs to be dealt with. That's what forgiveness does. It erases that debt. But that's not the only issue. In order to get into heaven, not only do you have to have that debt taken care of, but you also need a credit of infinite righteousness. All right? So forgiveness, all forgiveness does is it gets you back to the Garden of Eden. We need, to be, we need something better than the Garden of Eden. We need the future where the heaven comes to earth and there is this overlap. So we need to be not in the Garden of Eden. We need to be in, uh, in Christ. And so you owe an infinite debt by virtue of your sin. That is paid for. That is forgiveness. But in addition to that, you need an infinite credit to your account. That's what happens there uh, in, uh, in justification. And so uh, unrighteousness is thus this twofold problem. It's, uh, it's not merely that, uh, that we have the presence of evil, but also the absence of perfection. And so that's why uh, whenever we gave the, uh, the definition that we came up with, we said justification is the act of God whereby he credits those who are unrighteous as having the status of righteous, which means both the absence of evil and the presence of moral perfection. And, uh, and so basically, if you were to think about it like this, you are unrighteous. You need to be righteous. Forgiveness merely gets you back to here, morally neutral. You're unrighteous. Forgiveness merely gets you to here, but you need actually to have a positive righteousness. This is a negative righteousness. You need this positive righteousness in order to uh, inherit uh, eternal life. And so forgiveness gets you halfway there, but you also need this righteousness of Christ that's been imputed to your account. And we'll talk about that here in a moment. So you have a little, uh, you have a little diagram there in your notes that kind of helps you see. On the left, you have this circle that's you see it's full of all of these negative, uh, these transgressions, these sins, these iniquities, all of these sorts of things. And imagine that you were to just simply erase those. Well, that doesn't actually get you where you need to be, which is uh, to that circle where it has all the positives. And that's what, uh, that's what justification uh, is, is about. By the way, this is why justification by works doesn't work. All right, so if you, uh, are in most other traditions, whether they are cults or world religions, uh, in most other systems, you have this idea of justification by, uh, by works. And the reason it doesn't work is because you're starting off from this sort of uh, negative perspective uh, but let's imagine you somehow could muster up the strength, uh, even by grace. You muster up the strength where for the rest of your life, uh, you just do positive works, positive works, positive works. Well, that never actually deals with this. 
That's what justification uh, is taking care of. It's both taking care of the negative sins that you have committed and are committing and will commit, and then it's also imputing this uh, perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So that's the difference between justification and, uh, and forgiveness. They are complementary, again, but uh, justification is much more than forgiveness. So that's the first one. Part two, justification distinguished. Let's talk about the difference between justification and sanctification. Uh, Carl Brower is a big fan of Hamilton, the, uh, the, the musical. In fact, uh, whenever uh, the staff did a trip to Colorado, uh, Zach, because he's afraid of flying, rode in the car with the Browers the entire trip. And he said almost the entire trip, they just sang the Hamilton soundtrack. And uh, so it's like torture for Zach. It's like, that's what you get for being afraid of flying. And uh, so anyway, uh, if you're familiar with uh, Alexander Hamilton, one of the, the founding fathers, and so he and Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, they had very different perspectives on uh, the role of, uh, of government. And they uh, came from those perspectives because they had very different fears. So Thomas Jefferson, he feared tyranny more than anything else. He feared that there was going to be this uh, sort of tyrannical king as, uh, as was experienced at times in England's history and, and throughout uh, world history, whereas Hamilton didn't fear tyranny as much as he feared anarchy. And, uh, and so, likewise, you see sort of a same thing when it comes to various churches. Some churches really fear legalism, kind of like uh, Jefferson feared tyranny. So they focus all their energy on talking about justification other churches, kind of like Hamilton fears anarchy, other churches really fear licentiousness, that people are just going to take grace and go completely off the rails and, uh, and just pursue sin. So they stress sanctification. But both are really necessary in order for us to have a solid sort of biblical perspective. You can't have either just justification or just sanctification. You actually need them both together as you wouldn't want any sort of uh, view of government that was purely tyrannical, nor would you want any view of government that was purely anarchical. And uh, I don't know if that's an actual word, but I used it as one, so it works. As there are certain things that you would expect your government should do, and there's other things that you would expect your government not to do, so there are certain things that we expect of justification that we don't expect of sanctification and, uh, and vice versa. So you have a little chart there in your notes to help you see some of the differences between justification and sanctification. The first one being that justification is extrinsic. It's extrinsic. It's something that is outside of you. You are declared to be uh, righteous. It's why uh, oftentimes you will hear justification as, uh, as being about the idea of an alien righteousness. Not like E.T. or Predator or something like that. No, alien in the sense of it's something that's outside of you. All right, and so it's an alien righteousness, it's uh, extrinsic, whereas sanctification is about something intrinsic, something that's happening inside of you. You are made to be more righteous in the process of sanctification, whereas justification you are declared to be. Justification is also this one-time event. You are justified. You will never be more justified than you are now, whereas sanctification is this progressive, ongoing, continual process. You are more sanctified than you were, and you will be more sanctified than you are. Likewise, justification is this sort of immediate thing related to the above. Uh, sanctification is this gradual process. Justification is, is about your objective status. 
whereas sanctification is about this subjective state. So a few different ways um, that they, uh, they differ. They differ with regard to their object. So what's the object of justification versus the object of sanctification? Well, the object of justification is concerned with your guilt, whereas the object of sanctification is concerned with uh, the pollution of sin. In other words, justification, we've used this language before, justification deals with the penalty of sin and the power of sin, whereas sanctification is dealing more with the presence of sin. Justification is more dealing with the penalty of sin, whereas sanctification is dealing with the presence of sin. So they differ with regard to their object. They differ with regard to their uh, form. Justification is this uh, judicial forensic declaration whereby our sins are forgiven and the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, whereas sanctification is a moral act whereby righteousness is infused in us. And, uh, and there's this internal uh, renovation of our, uh, of our natures, our souls, our spirits that's affected. So they differ as to their object, they differ as to their form, they differ as to their agree, the degrees that justification is given in this life fully. There's no possible increase. We talked about that before. You're never going to be more justified than you are now, whereas sanctification is begun in this life and it progresses throughout this life, but it's not complete until the next life. The declaration of justification is once for all, but the inward work of sanctification takes place by degrees. And then lastly, they differ as to order, that God only sanctifies those who are already reconciled and justified by faith. In other words, there's a a priority, there's a primacy, you're justified, and then sanctification begins to, uh, to take place. And so true sanctification never happens in someone that is not actually uh, justified. And uh, so they differ with regards to their object, their form, their degrees, and their uh, orders. And so there's two dangers as we talk about the difference between sanctification and justification. There's two dangers that we want to uh, avoid. The first one is that we might divide them, that we divide them, that we think that you could somehow be justified without also being sanctified, or that you could be sanctified without being justified. Um, both of those would dilute, either of those divisions would dilute the meaning, the necessity of justification, and, uh, and thus dilutes the death and resurrection of, uh, of Christ. So that's the first danger, that we want to avoid uh, dividing them, as if you could have one without having the other. But the second danger is that we would conflate them or confuse them or merge them together as if they're not distinct aspects. If our hope is in sanctification and sanctification ebbs and flows, then what happens of your hope? It ebbs and flows as well, right? Whereas justification never ebbs and flows. It never increases or decreases. So your hope should never increase or decrease. Your hope should never uh, ebb and, uh, and flow. We'll talk about that when we get to imputed versus imparted righteousness. So when it comes to justification and sanctification, I think it's important to recognize we should distinguish the two, but not divide them. These are two graces that God uh, uh, works in His people, and we can distinguish them, but we should never divide them. So that's justification versus sanctification. Let's talk about how we are justified Last week, if you're with us, uh, Zach kind of walked us through this history of interpretation on justification 
from the early church through the heretic Pelagius, through the medieval church to the Protestant Reformation. Go back and listen to that if you didn't get a chance uh, to be here. But he talked about the Catholic view of uh, justification. And, uh, and he began, uh, even before the Catholic view, he began with uh, Pelagius. And uh, if you remember, Pelagius stressed the idea that you didn't need grace to obey God. You simply do what is in you, and uh, you do your best, and that is enough. And so you're kind of born as a blank slate. And, uh, and so the, the church officially condemned Pelagianism, and, uh, and they affirmed Augustinian theology, which is the idea that you need grace. You need grace uh, alone. And so uh, Augustine and the, uh, the other church fathers certainly taught that you are saved by grace alone. But for Augustine and most of the church fathers, it's not by faith alone. You're by grace alone, but not by faith alone. You needed uh, grace, and that is grace is going to be imparted through the sacraments. That's how God imparts grace to His, uh, His people. And so that's imparted righteousness, as we'll talk about here in a moment, whereas the uh, Protestant Reformation brought about this idea that you are saved not only by grace alone, but also by faith alone, one of the five solas of the Reformation. Sola Deo Gloria, sola gratia, by grace alone, sola fide, uh, by faith alone. And so they really stress this idea of imputed uh, righteousness. And so in the Catholic versus Protestant system, we see uh, Catholic theology that, uh, that it's more synergistic, Protestant it's monergistic, in the Catholic uh, view, it's progressive. In, uh, in the Protestant view, justification is something that's instantaneous. Catholic view, justification means it's something that you actually become. Protestant view, it's something you're declared to be. Catholic view, it's intrinsic. Protestant view, it's extrinsic. The Catholic view, some people are more justified than others. It's greater in some than others. In the Protestant view, every believer is the same amount of justified. In the Catholic view, it's imparted. In the Protestant view, it's imputed. In the Catholic view, it's faith plus sacraments plus works of love. In the Protestant view, it's faith alone. And so there's these big differences that we talked about last week between Catholics and Protestants. In particular, you will see almost all of the differences between Catholics and Protestants revolve around their thoughts on justification and their thoughts on, uh, on the authority of Scripture. And if you think that the biggest issue is justification, you're actually uh, wrong about that. The biggest issue, the biggest divide when it comes to the difference between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism is actually on the issue of the, uh, the authority of Scripture. So if you ever wonder why your Roman Catholic neighbor might not agree with you in your views on justification, or why they're fine with the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, the idea that, uh, that Mary uh, was born into a state of innocency and, uh, and that uh, actually she remained innocent, sinless her whole life. The sinlessness of Mary, if you ever wonder why they teach the perpetual virginity of, uh, of Mary or the, uh, the doctrine of purgatory, even though none of those are in Scripture, for them that's not in any way a problem that it's not in Scripture. Uh, the reason is because for them, they have two sources of authority. Scripture is a source of authority, but in addition to that, they have the magisterium, which is the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, which is of an equal authority as, uh, as Scripture for uh, Roman Catholics. And so if you want more of that, we taught on the authority of Scripture, canon of Scripture, and we really distinguished uh, between the Protestant and Catholic views back in spring of 2017. So you can... Uh, look that up. But 
One of the things that we just talked about is the difference between Catholic and Protestant theology uh, boils down to this view of in Catholic theology, righteousness is something that's imparted to us. In Protestant theology, it's something that's imputed to us. There's a world of difference. Those uh, just differ in a couple of letters, and yet there's a world of difference between imparted righteousness and imputed righteousness. So uh, let's talk about the differences. Uh, so impart, the impartation of righteousness. The word impart means, uh, means to give. It's also often called infused righteousness. So it's uh, the idea that uh, Christ's righteousness is given to or it's infused within the believer such that he or she actually becomes more righteous, right? And so it's imagining you're being, uh, someone takes a shot and they, they inject something into you. It actually begins to take a root in you. That's the idea there in Roman Catholic theology of imparted righteousness. Now, there's a sense in which this is true. There's a sense in which this is true. We are becoming righteous in a sense, but not in the way that uh, Roman Catholic theology is going to understand because our status never changes. Our state changes. That's what sanctification is about. But our status doesn't change. What Roman Catholic theology does is it, uh, it conflates or it uh, or inverts the difference between justification and, uh, and sanctification. So that's the difference, that our status doesn't change. We're becoming more righteous in some sense as our uh, faith matures, but our ground, our hope, our foundation for righteousness does not change as it does in uh, Roman Catholicism, uh, which is why Protestants are going to hold to this idea of imputed righteousness. So the word impute is probably not a word you use on a daily basis, um, but it means to ascribe or to credit so it, uh, it is a word that would also be translated as count or considered or reckoned. Um, all of these are the same sort of idea. And so here's the question. The question is not what it's often uh, phrased as. The question is not which one of these occurs in believers. The, the question is instead which one of these is the uh, ground, which one is the foundation, which one is the ultimate hope. For, uh, for believers. Is our justification based upon some level of righteousness that we acquire in this life? Or is our justification solely tethered to what Christ has accomplished in His life and death and resurrection? That's the question. The question is not whether righteousness is imparted or imputed, because I think in some sense it's both, but which one of those is our hope? Which one of those is, is, uh, is our hope? And throughout uh, Scripture, what we're going to see over and over and over again is the language of imputation, that we're reckoned, that we're counted, that we're considered uh, righteous. And so it's a good thing we're in Romans because most of these actually occur in the book of Romans. Romans 4, 3 through 8. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is an accounting term. 
Legizomai, I think it is in, uh, in the Greek. It's an accounting term. It means to consider. It means to reckon. It means to, uh, to uh, account. Uh, the idea is the crediting as you would in, in, uh, in, in accounting, if you've ever taken accounting or just familiar with your checkbook, you have debts and you have credits. And so what righteousness is, again, it's not just merely dealing with your debt, it's dealing also with a credit, a credit of, uh, of Christ's righteousness. Romans 4, 22 through 25, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for all's. Ours also it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was del- delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Romans 9, 8, you see similar sort of language where it talks about the children of the promise are counted as offspring. We preached on that a couple of weeks ago. 2 Corinthians five nineteen. that is in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So God considers, he credits, he reckons, He counts you as being righteous. And because He regards you as righteous, because He considers you to be righteous, you really are righteous. But it's just a a righteousness that exists because of the consideration. God declares you to be righteous. And so what is it that's imputed to you? Not merely what are you forgiven for, but what's been imputed to you. Well, this is the righteousness of Christ. We talked about that uh, back in, uh, in May and uh, in early June last, uh, last semester when we talked about the life of Christ and the death of Christ. We talked about the active righteousness of Christ and the passive uh, righteousness of Christ. So that's what is uh, imputed to us is the active and passive righteousness of Christ. In fact, we talked about what's called double imputation. Not only is Christ's righteousness imputed to us, but our sins are imputed to Christ. Christ was considered, Christ was counted uh, among the sinners uh, for our sake. And so, that's the difference between imputed and imparted righteousness. I want to talk for a second about why does it matter? At the end of the day, these are just these words that you don't use. You probably don't even use the word impart all that often. So, if you don't use these words, why does it matter At the end of the day, if you understand the difference between imputed and imparted righteousness, well, think about it like this. If Christ himself is not our righteousness, but rather we're infused or we're imparted with righteousness, then our standing before God, or at least our assurance of this standing, will always shift. As we progress, we have more assurance. As we degress, we have more, less assurance uh, or regress, I think is the word that I was looking for there. So you, you know that song, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand, All Other Ground is Sinking Sand? That's what imparted righteousness is going to provide, this sort of sinking sand. There's no actual um, uh, confidence and assurance uh, of our uh, hope. It ebbs and flows along with, uh, with our behavior. Uh, John Bunyan I wrote this, and I think this is really helpful to understand why this is so important. He, he, wrote, he, he writes, uh, One day as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. Think about that for a second. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And with the eyes of my soul, I saw Jesus at the Father's right hand. There, I said, is my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say to me, Where is your righteousness? 
for it is always right before him. I saw that it is not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor my bad frame that made my righteousness worse, for my righteousness is Christ. Now my chains fell off indeed, my temptations fled away, and I lived sweetly at peace with God. Now I could look for myself to him and could reckon that all my character was like the coins a rich man carries in his pocket when all his gold is safe in a trunk at home. Oh, I saw that my gold was indeed in a trunk at home, and Christ my Lord. Now Christ was all my righteousness, sanctification, and, uh, and redemption. In other words, if you uh, view righteousness as being something imparted, then you're always looking within. And your confidence, your assurance, your hope is always going to be tied to how are you doing that particular day. And I think if, uh, if you're honest with yourself, there are certain days when you feel less righteous than others. There are certain days when you feel less close to God than others. And if your view of righteousness is this righteousness that's infused or imparted, then your hope is going to ebb and flow as well. And so I think uh, John Bunyan here helps us to understand the difference between saying my righteousness is within me versus no, I'm in Christ and my righteousness is Him and Him alone. So this is why it's not merely that our righteousness is imputed, but it's that we are incorporated into him. We'll talk about this in a, in a couple of weeks, that justification is tied to our union with Christ. Justification is imputed to us because we are incorporated in him. This is what 1 Corinthians 1 is saying. Because of him you are in Jesus Christ, who became to us for, uh, wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So Jesus is your righteousness. That's imputed versus imparted. Talk about faith versus uh, works. So again, Pelagius, what did he believe? Did you need grace? No, no grace with uh, Pelagius. The Roman Catholic Church followed not Pelagius, but who? Augustine. Did you need grace? But uh, So it's grace alone, but is it faith alone? No, you need faith plus what? plus the, uh, the sacraments. And then so the, in the Reformation, what you do is you have this recovery, not merely of Augustinian grace alone, but also of the idea of by uh, faith alone. So let's just look at some of the scriptures uh, that uh, teach this. And so we read this before, but I want to read it again. Uh, Romans 4, 3 through 8. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are forgiven. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Romans 10, 8 through 11, we'll get to in a few weeks. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Or Romans 3, 21 through 28. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation 
by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be, the ju- be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's ex- excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we are justified, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Acts 15, 8 through 9. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Philippians 3, 8 through 9. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Galatians 3, 5-6, through 6, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Ephesians 1, 13-14 In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So over and over and over again you see this refrain of justification by faith alone. In fact, you'll see in a lot of these passages, you'll see the five solas of the Reformation. You see grace alone. You see faith alone. You see Christ alone. Uh, you see the glory of God uh, alone. And, uh, and so uh, you see all of these different elements. And so then you ask the question, well, what about works? If we're saved by faith alone and not by works, uh, what is it about works? James 2 talks about this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is dead? In fact, James will say that you are justified by works. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that kind of language? Well, some just kind of ignore that. They kind of relegate James to this second tier letter. They say that it's kind of less inspired. It's kind of diet gospel. It's kind of James is the Pepsi of the New Testament or something like that. That's what uh, Luther did. He said St. James's epistle is really a right strawy epistle compared to these others. It has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. That was from Luther's preface to the German edition of the the New Testament. So here's the big question. Do James and Paul disagree? Paul says you are saved by faith apart from works of the law, whereas uh, James is going to say that you are uh, justified by works. And so what we see as we look at the Scriptures is that these are complementary. They're not contradictory perspectives. There's a few different ways that we can see this. First, notice what James says. He's talking about claiming faith versus possessing faith. Notice James says, what good is it if someone says he has faith? He doesn't actually uh, grant that someone has saving faith. 
He's talking about the difference between claiming faith or proclaiming that you have faith versus actually possessing faith. James is also talking about the difference between like a head faith, whereas Paul is talking about something that's much more of a holistic faith, the head and the heart and the mind and the will and all of these sorts of things. So James will talk about the, even the demons believe and they shudder. In other words, they know something, but they don't trust in it. They're not resting uh, in it. So true saving faith is more than just intellectual assent. They're also talking about the difference between the fruit of something and the seed of something, that good works are the result, not the reason for our justification. Paul's going to talk about this in Galatians where he says that what counts is faith working itself out through love. And, uh, and then they're also distinguishing between living faith versus dead faith. We're justified by faith alone, but not by a faith which is uh, alone. In other words, we're saved by this living faith. We're saved by a working faith. It's faith alone, but it's the type of faith that works. We've used this illustration before. Imagine that you have the seed and you have a pe- pebble and you're not sure uh, which one is which. Well, what do you do? You plant it into the ground, you water it, and you see which one actually bears fruit. That's the one that was a seed all along. That's the difference between truth uh, saving faith and this false faith that uh, James is, uh, is dealing with here. So as we talked about with Hamilton and Jefferson, the difference between one fears tyranny, the other fears anarchy. So Paul and James are dealing with different dangers that could, uh, could face the church. Which danger is most dangerous depends on your uh, context. So which is being emphasized It's often a result of what's being threatened at the time. Luther really emphasizes justification by faith because he feels like he is being threatened by the works that are inherent to the Roman Catholic uh, view of righteousness and justification. Uh, Whereas in other contexts, we might need to stress more the working aspect of faith as we are encountering sort of an, an anemic view of faith that's kind of just... Uh, intellectual assent or something like that. Or a few weeks ago, we talked about uh, a view of, uh, of uh, a faith that's called um, uh, free grace or cheap grace or easy believism, which is the idea that you could actually be a genuine believer of Christ and your life be uh, changed not one bit. You could live your entire life without any change whatsoever in your constitution, in your, uh, in your actions, anything like that. You can have Jesus as Savior, but never have him as Lord, these sorts of, uh, of ideas. And so, did the Protestants get it right? Did they get it right as they kind of distinguished the, uh, the view of, uh, of faith versus uh, works? Uh, what is the deal with the difference between works and works of the law? These are the kinds of things that uh, Zach is going to help us think through next week as we look at kind of a, uh, a modern perspective. So we've now gone through kind of historical perspective on justification, talked about what the Bible says about it. There's been this sort of modern view that looks back on the Reformers and kind of critiques them to some degree. And so that's what we'll talk about uh, next week. But uh, before we do that, I want to just summarize what we kind of talked about today. Five points that you need to know for today. So justification is how you get the good stuff, even though you're bad. That's the first one. Second, justification is more than mere forgiveness. Third, justification is distinct, yet can be divided from sanctification, yet can't be divided from sanctification. Fourth, justification is imputed rather than infused or imparted. Fifth, justification is by faith alone apart from works. 
but such faith necessarily produces works. And then I want to end with this. Why is this an encouragement to believers? Why should this be encouraging uh, to you and to me? For uh, six reasons. First, it means that all one must do to be forgiven, to be justified, to be adopted, etc., is to rest in what Christ has done in His life and death. That's all you must do. Just rest in what Christ has done in His uh, life and death and resurrection. Second, it means that if you truly have trusted Jesus, you've been changed by the Holy Spirit, you absolutely are and will be saved. It doesn't increase or decrease. You don't go from being saved to unsaved to saved to unsaved with all of the sins that you commit. Third, it means that you don't have to get your life together before you come to Jesus. That's a, uh, an inversion of the order of things. Your life progressively begins to come together in some sense, after you come to Jesus, although you never really figure it out. Fourth, it means that God loves you as much as He ever will. He does not love you more when you've got it all together. He does not love you less when you're struggling. Fifth, it means that God never again has any hint or sliver of wrath toward believers so you can rest in His mercy and grace and love. And sixth, it means that faith doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. Faith is merely the instrument. So don't look to your faith or rest in your faith. Look to Jesus and rest in Him. We are justified by faith, but not saved by faith. Before you ever have faith, you were loved, you were elected, you were called, you were regenerated. All of those things happened before you even had the slightest hint of faith. Here's a quote from uh, Charles Spurgeon I want to end with, and then I'll have Zach come up and we'll do Q&A. I think this is, uh, this is really important for us, especially those of us who might struggle with whether or not God loves us, who might struggle with uh, seeing ourselves as being only a sinner uh, and, uh, and not a saint, who might uh, struggle with condemnation or shame or guilt or fear or whatever it might be. Uh, and so he preached this on August 24th, 1856. And he says this, But remember, sinner, it is not thy hold of Christ that saves thee, it is Christ. It is not thy joy in Christ that saves thee, it is Christ. It is not even thy faith in Christ, though that is the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, look not to thy hope, but to Christ, the source of thy hope. Look not to thy faith, but to Christ, the author and finisher of thy faith. And if thou doest that, ten thousand devils cannot throw thee down, but as long as thou lookest at thyself, the meanest of those evil spirits may tread beneath his feet. It is not faith, it is not our doings, it is not our feelings upon which we must rest, but upon Christ and on Christ alone. Zach, you want to come up? We'll do some Q&A.